0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll examine the latest bout of government infighting over Truss's deregulatory agenda, whether environment agency staff will vote to down tools. We'll take a look at the Labour Party's rather lacklustre green policies. And then we have a very special guest with us in the Eco Chamber. I'll be talking to Lord Heseltine, Who's going to tell us exactly what he thinks of the government's dash for deregulation and its planned new investment zones? Then Simon and Alice will be along to talk about the EU's right to repair policy. So, without further ado, let's enter the eco chamber. I'm Rachel Savage, and today I'm here as usual with Jamie Carpenter and Tess Colley. Our first story of the Big Green News section is about the latest plot point in Downing Street's debacle, which is beginning to make the thick of it resemble a documentary. As Eco Chamber listeners will know well by now, Trust has vowed to rip up swathes of environmental protections, green farm subsidies and planning rules without so much as a hint of what might replace them. Well, last week, Liz Truss and Jacob rees mogg reportedly had a bit of a tussle after failing to agree on a deregulation plan. And then over the weekend, Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng got the boot in favour of Jeremy Hunt, who some suspect is now our de facto prime minister. Jamie, can you make any sense of what's happening and what this might mean for environmental policy? Can anyone?
1: Can I, um, I, the short <laughs> answer is no. No, <laughs> that's <laughs> but, fair. But, um, but I, I, I guess to to take a to take a step back, there are a few things that that, that still that, that are are kind of clear from from what what's been happening. I think I think one one of the one of the things that I think is still on the table from from what's been said this morning. So we're we this is the day before the podcast's gone out. So for all we know, this trust might not be the Prime Minister by the time this <laughs> anything
2: could happen. Anything could happen. Yes.
1: But but it seems it seems that um one one of the statements given this morning is that the, the government's gonna stick to its guns on investment zones. Mm-hmm. So um so that's obviously something that's been very unpopular with um green groups and um Maybe a little bit surprising that the, the 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 government given how unstable things are wants to kind of press ahead with that but um i guess they've got to press ahead with something given that Jeremy <laughs> Hunt's basically chunked everything else yeah. um so so there's that I, I think the i think the 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 other kind of takeaways i, I guess i mean there's, there's probably a bit of a question mark hang over the um planning reform so mm. so one 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 of the um one of the strands of what what was being called Operation Rolling Thunder until it was Rolling Thunder, rolling thunder <laughs> which is a bit of an unfortunate name, given it was supposed to be what the given it's was uh, what what an American bombing campaign in the Vietnam War was called um mm. but now now Placeful. it's even worse it's been described as operation shitstorm storm because it's all gone a bit wrong so um, <laughs> excellent but um so one, one of the strands this is all the like different different bits of supply side reforms including the planning planning reforms um and and they, they've apparently been delayed so we were expecting something this week but they've now been pushed back to after the um the fiscal statement that was supposed to be at the end of this month but now seems to be brought forward so um Yes. Losing track. But but those, I think that those were supposed to include things like um, changes to EU regulations, changes around affordable housing obligations, nutrient neutrality, and possibly biodiversity improvements, which is a bit of a, one of the the press reports is a bit of a hint that biodiversity net gain requirements might be watered down, which is pretty. Astonishing, given that's one of the kind of flagship elements, of the Environment Act, and that hasn't actually even been introduced yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's all that going on. I think I think the, the other thing that's probably quite interesting for for our audience is is the suggestion now that there might be some fairly big public spending cuts to come. Um, so um, so Jeremy Hunt's asked all government departments to find efficiencies, um, and in a statement today he said that all departments will need to redouble their efforts to find savings. And some areas of spending will need to be cut. Mm. So, um, give, given that we we know what what kind of impact that those big spending cuts over the last decade have had on on the regulators, that's that's quite that's quite concerning. Mm.
0: They must be thinking, what is left to cut? And will you stop telling us to cut? Because everybody's <laughs> doing it: Jacob Rees-Mogg, Liz everybody's telling them to do it. And, I think it must just be completely demoralizing for them. Um, Interestingly, I saw um, former Environment Secretary George Eustace talking to Sky News at the weekend, and he's saying it would be a terrible mistake to be scrapping all these green rules. And he said that... um, we will only have sustainable growth if we're looking after the planet. I mean, wow. Wouldn't it be nice if have heard that in the last, you know, when he was actually Environment Secretary and right around the Cabinet? Wouldn't that would be nice? Yes. Anyway. <laughs> um, so observers are saying that Truss potentially only has a few days left of Prime Minister. What do we think, Tess? Do you think that's going to, is she going to go?
3: Is she going to stay? Should we put money on it? Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, am, I am a betting woman. I, I can't see her. I mean, the, this is going to be a horrendous week for her if she mm. does make it to the end i mean she must have i'm trying to think of an appropriate uh metaphor um she <laughs> must, <laughs> she'll have um, a polite one a polite one she's certainly got a thick skin and she can make it to the end of this week with that but mm. you know I I, I I don't know what happens if if she does resign um what happens then mm. um you know who do we go into a general election uh, i know we're going to talk about labor a bit later but what where does it where does it all go yeah um, it's and can the Tory party ever make the
0: argument ever again that they're the party that can be trusted with the economy? I think she's kind of shot themselves in the face. or not even the foot. Um, yeah. okay. But anyway, but don't put down your popcorn yet because, you know, the series finale is just around the corner. I think. <laughs> Our second story is about the Environment Agency. Um, over the last week, the unions Unison and Prospect have begun balloting Environment Agency staff to see whether or not they want to strike over the latest pay offer. Now, this would include the people that would be voting, include river inspectors, flood forecasting officers, coastal risk management officers, sewage plant attendants, and on and on and on. Um, earlier this year, the Environment Agency uh, staff rejected a pay increase of 2% and an additional 245 quid, um, which would clearly be substantially lower than the rate of inflation test. Can you give us a little bit more on this story?
3: Yeah well in, in the long series of stories we've run on the dissatisfaction yeah. in uh, the environment agency yeah. um and it's i guess coming to a, a sort of head the unions as you say they're balloting their members um uh, to see if they would like to vote for uh, industrial action um i mean this is something we saw earlier in the year with natural england they they were taking industrial action short of strike mm-hmm. but now the environment agency which is you know is a much bigger um, regulators, the it's Defra's biggest one, um, uh, potentially looking looking to to com- really call out what's happening. This because as we've reported uh, over many months, people that work at the environment Agency are seriously struggling on kind of very kind of basic levels mm. to do their job in the first place, um, and having to use food banks and this sort of thing. Yeah. It's mm. it's it's like on a real personal level. It's a very bad situation. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's one to watch. Uh, Unison balloted their staff last week. Um, Prospect, the second union, is also opening a ballot on uh, the 19th of October, Mm -hmm. which is um, two days from today. And that will run for a month. So be one to watch. Um, But uh, yeah, it's... it's, um...
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It, it's
3: a tough situation and
0: it's not just pay getting them down, is it? As ecochamber super fans will be <laughs> acutely aware morale is also being crushed by the agency's decision not to direct funds towards frontline workers and um but it, instead it seems to be going to deathbound roles. Um water quality monitoring has been slashed, enforcement action has dropped off a cliff and 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 all the rest of it whistleblowers have told us that they can't really do the jobs in the way that they want to do them and that they no longer deter polluters. I mean, so Jamie, what do you think about this? Do you think, you know, is the EA going to budge? Can they budge? DEFRA well, rather?
1: Yeah, well I, I I imagine given what we were saying about the um in in the in the previous story around the public public finances and, and public spending cuts coming down the track, it's probably unlikely that there's going to be much much change here, unfortunately. Mm. So I think I think and, and, and the kind of consequences that the there are kind of two things. As Tess was saying, is this kind of human aspect around the horrible sort of thing around staff having to turn to food banks in some in some cases to deal with the cost of living, but but there's also a practical implication that will be experienced not just by the environment agency, but by the people that the kind of stakeholders and people that, that sort of pay charges for um, regulation, permitting, that kind of stuff. So yeah. so over the summer there were reports that there were some severe recruitment difficulties for some environment agency roles, particularly mm. around hiring regulatory and permitting officer roles. In waste and industrial regulation, um, yeah. so so they struggled to fill vacancies, and there's there's apparently a growing backlog of permitting applications from waste and industrial site operators, um, and unions are saying that that poor pay is is in part to blame for the recruitment issues. So so it's so it's it's bad for the environment agency staff and and their morale, but it's also um, if it's probably another kind of element to the the, the anti-growth coalition sort of <laughs> try, sort of. If there's delays in getting permits through, that's that's not good for for industry no. at all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if, as you mentioned before, if there are all these edicts coming down to you know cut, 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 I mean, there's not, no one's going to win an argument for for pay rises, you'd think, in in that kind of context. So Tess, you mentioned
3: um, a similar situation at Natural England. What's going to happen next? Do you think? Well, the latest we have with Natural England is they've actually called, well, Prospect, the union Prospect called off its industrial action early this year in June, uh, saying they'd won concessions. Uh, from from Natural England, who they said agreed to work more closely with with the union and and uh, the, another civil service union PCS, and that they these unions would form parts of the teams on the staff framework review and pay reform projects, which you know for them was a big win. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they haven't ruled out further industrial action. And when I spoke to um, Gary Graham, the general secretary of Prospect. Many months ago, when you know we were kind of reporting a lot on uh, the situation at Natural England, where staff are having to take second jobs, for a similar situation to the Environment Agency, and he he thought the uh, the industrial action being taken at Natural England was the start of action across the piece, as he put it. And now mm. we're seeing it kind of play out now with the Environment Agency. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Natural England, the union there, they've they've definitely not ruled out uh, another ballot in the future if they don't see the progress they want to see. Well,
0: I wait to see what decisions both uh, staff, both regulators make, and we'll be following this closely on endsreport.com. For our final story, we thought that given the Labour Party's chunky lead in the opinion polls, we ought to take a look at their environment policies, but it wasn't very edifying. Uh, Jim McMahon is the Shadow Environment Secretary, and his speech to the Labour Party conference didn't really break any exciting ground at all. Jamie, can you fill us in on the headline announcements?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one, really, because I think I think um, the Labour Party um, they, they have they have quite a lot to say on on certain green policies. So, so if you look at sort of energy and climate, Keir Starmer and Ed ban had quite a lot to say on on those things in their conference speeches. So um, Keir Starmer was talking about turning Britain into a green green growth superpower, 100 percent clean power by 2030. Talking about doubling. Onshore wind capacity, trebling solar power, all this sort of stuff. Um, so there's, there's kind of quite a bold vision on in in, in that respect. But actually, when, however, however <laughs> yeah, the there's, there's, yes, <laughs> there's 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 a lot less to say on nature and wildlife. So so um, so Jim McMahon's conference speech, he was talking about cleaning up the water industry and um, a legally binding target to when ninety percent of sewage discharges by twenty thirty, and um, putting directors of water companies. Um, making them professionally and personally accountable for illegal activity. Um, but, but beyond that, there wasn't really a huge amount. So there, there's kind of various things we do know. Um, there have been calls, Labour have called for suspension of the rollout of environmental land management schemes. Mm,
0: yeah. um, what is their reasoning for that? What are they saying? Is it for, you know, in sympathy to farmers who are struggling economically? I mean, it's certainly not going to go down well with green groups.
3: It's, it's around around um, the impact on farmers and that they're going to be left short if they don't have, you know, not having the the basic payment come in. I think most notably there was a lot of talk around this at the time of the Tiverton devon by-election mm. um, when the Lib Dems also, who went on to win, uh, campaigned very hard on on that, on doorsteps. They said yeah. it was playing massively for them. You know, the idea that Elms was, you know, they they delay it they didn't say they'd suspend it, but they would delay. And Labour sort of made similar noises, but they I don't think they were ever in, in view to win. So yeah. But that that is they're definitely not um they haven't thrown themselves behind it exactly. Right. And there is the, the Labour Party responded to the uh
0: government's consultation on the Nature Recovery Green Paper. Did they did they say anything a little bit stronger there? No.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, they 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 taught, it was very short their statement. Um and they they kind of used it as a way to talk about how they, they had a plan to establish um the a Clean Air Act, you know, illegal act for citizens to breathe clean air. Um, but that's not really an you know, well, it is environmental, but it's not it's not to do with the land or um nature recovery necessarily. Yeah. Um so I think it it's it was a bit it was it's lacking in details on environmental and ecological particular subjects.
0: Yeah. So Jamie, what should they do now to win people over or do they do they still think that these issues are not important for the people in the constituencies that they need to target?
1: Yeah, well, I mean I think that, that one one of the strands that does come through is that they they're they're talking about policies that need to do more for nature recovery in urban areas that probably does mm-hmm. reflect their, where their constituencies are yeah. but i mean but i think at, at the moment it's not not really much of a manifesto um and and you could say that that we we aren't yet close enough to put election to for for an opposition party to to set out lots of detail, but that that might change quite quickly given how volatile things are. <laughs> yes. um, and it and I, and I guess it does feel like we're in we're at a point in a political cycle where power has shifted. So it kind of it feels a bit like when at the end of the Brown government, where everyone everyone kind of knew that Labour were going to lose the next election, and and the, the party conference was re- really really depressing place to be, and and um, it just uh, businesses getting behind the, the the other party and and um and i i guess that means that there's probably going to be a lot more interest in labor what labor has to say now and a lot more scrutiny of it and um and i'd I kind of hope that they take the approach that they they actually do set out their policies in a lot of detail and let people comment on them because um, i think that they, they, there kind of has been a tendency recently for parties to be quite quite controlled over what they say in in run up to an election and you don't really know what they're going to do so yeah. I think it would be nice if they take it really seriously and and, and, and do put out the detail and, and, and consult people on what, they, what they're what they planning because yeah. it does seem like the way things are right now that they will be the next government.
0: Are you listening, Kia? <laughs> Are you listening? Some sound advice there. Okay, on that note, that brings us to the end of our Big Green News section. Next up, I'm really pleased to be able to bring you my interview with Lord Heseltine. But I must point out that when we spoke last week, this was before Jeremy Hunt was made Chancellor and reversed almost all of the plans set out by his short-lived predecessor, Kwasi Kwarteng. So, I'm thrilled to be able to welcome Lord Heseltine to the Eco Chamber. As our listeners will be aware, Michael Heseltine was a big beast of the political world. He was Deputy Prime Minister under John Major, a member of Margaret Thatcher's cabinet from 1979 until 1986, and has been Environment Secretary twice once under Thatcher and once under Major. Michael is now a member of the House of Lords, and I should say in the interest of full transparency that he's also the owner of Haymarket, of which the End's Report and the Eco Chamber is a part. So what um, what trust has announced on an environmental policy has caused uh, quite a lot of alarm across green groups to the point where organisations like the National Trust and the RSPB have begun to get quite uh, robust with them and even sort of threatening to mobilise their many millions of, of members. But just to To remind our listeners, the government's draft retained EU law bill Uh, revocation and reform bill, it would see large parts of EU-derived law automatically expire by the end of 2023 unless ministers decide to preserve them or replace them beforehand. And it also makes it easier for ministers to replace the laws by secondary legislation, which doesn't get the same amount of scrutiny as primary legislation. And among those laws, there are about 570 of them. There are lots that relate to the environment, so water quality, habitat, species protection, and so on. Um, And the NGOs are calling this an attack on nature um, and I'd love to know your thoughts on it, Lord Heseltine.
4: If you start from scratch, civilization exists because of regulation. If you get rid of all regulations, you go back to the jungle. And the jungle, as we all understand, is the survival of the fittest. There is no protection for the weak, which of course makes the stronger get stronger but eliminates anyone who can't defend themselves or is too frail or poor to feed themselves and look after themselves. So broadly, civilization consists of a code of regulations to protect people, to enhance opportunities, to take a wider national view of certain problems, whatever it may be. And I had the privilege under John Major, of being in charge of deregulation. It was uh, a popular uh, appointment. Swing to it, Tarzan, I think is what he said at a party conference. And I took it extremely seriously. And um, uh, I, 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 first of all, published, I think, 13,000 regulations so people could knew, See what this body of civilization amounted to. I appointed a minister in each government department to uh, join my crusade to get rid of unnecessary regulation. I created task forces, many of them led by prominent deregulatory people from the private sector, to look at the issue area by area in the round. And perhaps most significant of all, I wrote to every trade association and I said, look, I'm your man. I know what you feel about regulation. All you've got to do is to send me a typewritten explanation of an existing regulation and alongside it, a draft of what you'd like to put in its place. And I will look at them all. Well, I had, I think, two years uh, looking at all of that. And my own view is that it actually added up to practically nothing. Uh, The most interesting of all was I didn't get any response from the trade associations. Here, given the chance to change, improve, remove regulations, they had no views as to what needed doing. And that told me something very simple. There's a pretty good reason for these regulations. Now, going back to your question, which is very important, um, the whole Brexit campaign has at its heart had this deregulation argument associated, as I said, with Brussels and foreigners and all that sort of stuff. Um, But we've now six years since the Brexit referendum. And you would have thought that if it was so burdensome and the feelings were so strong and the constraints so real, that by now we would have had a whole raft of changes to create the new mood, the new opportunities, the freedom for Britain to expand, all those sort of phrases which justified Brexit. But here we are. Six years later, and we're still being promised that there's going to be big change without any indication of what the change is going to be. Oh, except one, and that, of course, was the um, banker's bonus uh, issue, which perhaps was not quite what people thought they were voting for when they voted for Brexit. So, if you really want impede investment. The way to do it is to inject real uncertainty into the minds of investors. And the more you say, we will change unquantified, unspecified regulations, the more investors say, well, you better tell us what you're going to put in their place, because we need to know if we're going to invest. And that's where we are. It's Endless uncertainty. My own deep suspicion is that when you know that, when we know the details, there will be a hostility from those who care passionately about the condition of the people and about the condition of the environment uh, and, and about all those things that make civilized living so important to us. But the uncertainty is a killer from the point of view of investment.
0: So, why why do you think they're going down this route? I mean. There's no public mandate for, to, to deregulate as well, as far as a lot of polls are showing. And a lot of these uh, rules, such as the habitats regulations, they've been reviewed a number of times in the past and been found to be sound each time. Um, I mean, are these just, you know, as you say, sort of just, just those easy sound bites, telling people what they think they want to hear um, and then moving on? Because obviously, as you pointed out, it's just creating a lot of uncertainty and they're not reassuring anybody by saying what's going to, to come in their place.
4: Well, you say there's no public mandate. Now, I disagree with that. There is a public mandate called Brexit because Brexit was built on the promise that there would be a great atmosphere of freedom, of new opportunities, if this burden of regulation was either lifted or removed. Um, So the public voted by a very narrow majority, I have to say, uh, for Brexit. And and within the Brexit manifesto, there was a clear commitment to deregulation. Uh, But of course, as I said, that was six years ago, and all you've got is uncertainty. And uncertainty is the one certain way to chill off investment. I think it is also true that it must be coming increasingly apparent to people that there are no simple deregulatory initiatives. That are gonna make much difference to our economic climate.
0: Yeah. And and one um some people who were against Brexit, they the one thing that they, they wanted to see change was the um the subsidies under the common agricultural policy because they saw that as very environmentally damaging. And the government had, as you know, they put together the environmental land management scheme that would replace these some of these subsidies with um uh money for doing things that are good for the environment, like planting trees and so on. But now it seems as though it's been reported in a number of places that the government plans to roll that back. Um, do you have any sense of why they might want to do that?
4: Well, uh, I, I, as you know, we as a company have interest in uh, farming. And uh, so I've been reading in the farming press these rumours. Um, We've had uh, years in which uh, a a new environmentally friendly regime was uh, introduced, and now I read that there is talk of going back to uh, a per acreage payment scheme of some sort, which is, of course, what we had under the Common Agricultural Policy. But I have no details. All I have is leaks from a government department. And uh, Mm -hmm. so like everybody else, I can't answer the questions. I just simply know that this brave new world we were told about is already under scrutiny by the department that actually made all the changes. It's deeply unstabilizing.
0: Yeah. And and my next question, then is very similar, um, unfortunately, because I was wanting to ask you about the government's proposed 38 new investment zones, seem to cover large swaths of the country, including some areas that be protected for nature, and in which planning rules would be relaxed. I think this is the government's words are they plan to remove burdensome e requirements which create paperwork and store development, but do not necessarily protect the environment. but again, they haven't specified how they would replace them and there was a report in The Guardian yesterday saying that the levelling up Secretary Simon Clark was planning to scrap nutrient neutrality rules and net gain. Um, which requires developers to ensure that there's at least a 10% uplift in biodiversity at the end of a development. Um, again, but there's no, it, it is just rumours. So, you know, I'm kind of reluctant to ask you what you think about it, because I guess it, uh, the the answer might be similar. But um, do you have any thoughts on that?
4: I, I have spent a, a, a great deal of my political career involved in trying to rebuild opportunities and prosperity in derelict areas. And uh, I, I am very aware of the latest announcements that the government have made about the zones they intend to create across the country. Uh, I've read the papers that the government have issued. And to me, there's, there's really a sort of deja vu about it all. because. The whole promise behind the government's announcement so far and, and of course, one must remember, we haven't got the details once again, damaging because of the uncertainty. But the, the whole promise upon which their zones are based, is exactly the discussion that took place in number 10, Downing Street in 1970, 1979. And there were four of us present. There was Geoffrey Howe as Chancellor, Keith Joseph as Minister of Industry, the Prime Minister, and myself as Environment Secretary. And Geoffrey was in favour of enterprise zones, which gave tax reductions to people who invested in these derelict areas. Keith was against any policy, because as he pointed out, this was a new government, non interventionist, and uh, My plans were essentially interventionist. Margaret listened to the arguments and overwhelmed um, the arguments of the Treasury and of Keith uh, and found in my favor. And the reason why she did that is because I was able to explain what actually needs to happen to really transform an area. First of all, you have to have an area of sufficient scale that people have confidence about the sort of investments that are going to take place there. If you are a big employer, for example, and today it's even more the case than it was then, you are deeply preoccupied about your staff you need to recruit people. And they're not going to go to places that are desolate or dangerous or dark or damp or surrounded by litter. No companies want to be associated with that. So, if you've got an area, a big area of dereliction, you have to have confidence that it's going to be cleared up so that good companies will go. To do that, you have to have some money. To get rid of the detritus of yesteryear on a significant scale. Uh, to make any sort of sense, you have to have planning powers. And you have to have compulsory land purchase powers. And above all else, you have to have a team of person, people with a chief executive in charge. It's quite interesting about the. Planning powers. And it's very much the same sort of point as I made a moment or two ago. If you are a major company, take Canary Wharf, for example, uh, in London, there's no way that uh, Paul Reichman would have committed the millions of pounds to that area if he thought that alongside it there were going to be a lot of tin sheds of very low grade opportunities. He had to know that the planning regime would be conducive to the quality of investment he was going to make. So planning was a positive argument in attracting him to doctrines. There are endless examples. The the Albert Dock in Liverpool uh, was a derelict relic of Victorian England. Uh, The the initial proposal was to knock it down. But to attract the Tate of the North, which has been a major investor in that block, meant it had to know that the environment in which it was going to trust the nation's treasures was going to be of high quality and that its neighbors were going to be sympathetic to that sort of cultural development. And the arguments are the same everywhere. So when I read about these new zones, with their tax breaks, I remember that argument of 1979, and it is not sufficient. It won't achieve what is required. It, 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 there will be some uh, investment, yes, but probably of a relatively low-grade employment opportunities, and not, nothing like the sort of opportunity that is required if you're going to bring big, expensive and high quality job creation to an area.
0: Yeah. And it's um it's a sort of similar story on fracking as well the um an announcement that the the ban on fracking has been lifted or will be lifted um done under the sort of guise of energy security even though I guess it would be most likely to be exported and seems doesn't seem like the best idea given we're a small and heavily populated island that doesn't have the same kind of geology as as the United States. Um but is is there anything in this that is is actually in fact a good idea? Could you support this, or do you think it's sort of going backwards?
4: I have reservations, and uh, I think that the idea that you can buy off local support uh, is is probably far fetched. Um, to me, incomparably the most important priority is to pursue the international agreements uh, of the uh, climate. Um, programme. And uh, this seems to be in contradiction to what the international agreements are urging us to do and which we've signed up to. Um, I I was Secretary of State, if I remember correctly, when I persuaded John Major to go to one of the first of these conferences that would have been in the 90s. Um, And they have been part of an international process of bringing frankly, self-interest and sanity uh, to the world faced with the environmental pressures which are even more evident today than they were when we started along that road.
0: And um, just quickly, I'd like to ask you about um, water pollution as well. So our ends Report has just released this month its first uh, ever documentary called Seven, The Poisoning of Britain's Amazon, uh, which can be watched on EnnsReport.com now. Um, it's kind of a bit of a sad tale of a, of a river in decline. um looking at I mean, there are lots of sources of pollution for a river, but this one looks particularly at uh, agriculture and the water sector, which is dumping huge volumes of untreated sewage into our rivers, lakes and seas. Um, so I was really, really interested to hear your, your thoughts about the water industry and privatisation. Um, obviously, we were in support of that uh, um, a number of years ago, but has it played out in the, in the way that you expected? Have there been some successes and some failures or, or um, in, from your perspective, Has it done what what you hoped it would do?
4: Well, I I don't myself blame the water companies because they operate in the climate, the legislative climate in which uh, they were established. And uh, if there's to be a serious environmental policy governing discharges to our rivers and beaches, then that's the government's responsibility uh, to, first of all, uh, enact... Appropriate legislation, and then set up organisations to ensure it's implemented. But there is a very, uh, I'm very interested in this subject because in 1981, when I was deeply immersed in the uh, riots in Liverpool, uh, I I remember a very emotional evening. It was the end of a long day, and I was alone in my bedroom in the Atlantic Tower Hotel in Liverpool, I looked out of the the window, and there was this great historic river, an open sewer. And I remember feeling quite emotional that this incredible natural phenomenon, upon which the prosperity of this enormously significant international city was based, had just been allowed to deteriorate in such an unforgivable way. And two weeks later, I announced Clean the Mersey campaign. And 25 years later, there had been marked improvements. But at the end of the 25 years, the campaign came to an end. And I I could never understand that. Well, I'm delighted to see that Steve and the Uh, elected mayor of greater Merseyside, has now reinstated the, the campaign and announced an end date for the discharge of toxic activity into the river. Now, there will be those who say, and this goes back to your earlier line of questioning, that is regulation, and that is supposed to create jobs. Exactly the opposite is the truth, because in, in the announcement that has been made, just as when I originally did the first one, there is a date, and in the course of the time between now and the date, the capital equipment that governs the discharging into the river will all most certainly have depreciated and need replacing. By giving dischargers notice in good time, you're merely telling them that they will need different sorts of capital investment than they previously thought they might. And of course, by doing so, you create new demands for better high-quality equipment Produced by companies at the leading edge of their technology. But I've also argued, and I think this would lie behind the new announcements, that here is a world opportunity. Because, in my judgment, purely a personal judgment, but across the world, populations are not going to tolerate for long the open sewerage process that affects rivers across the world. And I think that for Liverpool to say we are going to be a pace-setting example of what can happen would be a big plus for, for Liverpool, for the Mersey, for job creation, for the consultants that will come and take advantage, and then more for the leisure industries that may invest in the area. So it is fascinating how these things lead one thing to another, how regulation creates jobs and doesn't destroy them. And of course, there is a logic, and I would commend it to the government. Why just the Mersey? Why not actually move across the whole of the United Kingdom and say that we are going to have a nation of clean water? It would be very popular. It will. The costs would be relatively small. The job upsides would be very considerable.
0: Yeah. And and, and yet what's happening is that the Environment Agency, its funding has been slashed uh, very, very deeply over the sort of last decade or so. Um, it doesn't have as many frontline officers. Its monitoring regime has been cut back. It's announced that it's not going to attend all pollution incidents because it can't afford it. It's been explicit about that. There's been a massive exodus of staff and expertise. They, they they're not paying them enough. They're they're voting uh, right now on whether they're going to strike or not. Some are leaving to work at supermarkets because the pays better, and some are actually using food banks, according to the Environment Agency's previous chair Emma Emma Howard Boyd. Um, the number of prosecutions that it's undertaken and, and, and any enforcement action uh, actually has fallen off a cliff. So, I mean, it's, it's you, you know you're saying regulation is the right thing, and it does sound like the right thing, but it's it's gone entirely the other way, and the water sector has been asked to regulate itself. So, it reports on its own misdemeanors, which um, you know is obviously problematic. So, you know, is this is this uh, has the environment agencies been captured?
4: Well. I think the answer to your question is so obvious, that this is a ministerial responsibility. The Environment agency is a quango. I I think I may have created it, I'm not sure, but certainly I would support the idea of it. But um, the fact that uh, the sort of criticisms you're making uh, exist is a ministerial responsibility. And if it's not doing its job properly, then you change the chairman overnight. Um, That's that's the essence of decision-making and leadership. But it's a political failure you're talking about. Um, There's nothing wrong with the concept of an agency responsible for the execution of public policy.
0: Yeah, I think the the new chair has told the um, Environment Agency, which is currently under review, that it needs to you know, support the, uh, the government's growth agenda and it needs to sort of become a modern-day regulator. Obviously, it doesn't, none of those things are, are clear. There's no specifics as usual in that, but it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's going to be tougher regulation a, as a result.
4: Well, wait a minute. Uh, I'm dead keen on a growth agenda. Um, I like to think that many of the policies I introduced have been extraordinarily successful in generating growth. Um, but the question is, how do you generate growth? And in my experience, deregulation is not a, a, a simplest solution. Uh, regulations can create jobs just as effectively as they can destroy them. And tax incentives, whilst important, are not of themselves sufficient. You know, I, I've had the privilege of being involved in creating a business. And there are many reasons why you want to develop a business and why you want to expand a business. But quite low down the list is the percentage of tax that you pay at the end of the process. Much more important are the opportunities and the excitement and the independence and the freedoms that creating a business generates. Uh, The opportunities to Uh, expand the business and develop it. These are the things that motivate the entrepreneurs. Of course, if you have punitive taxation, they go somewhere else. But by and large, marginal rates of tax between one economy and another are not the determining factor. Perhaps they are for the big institutional investors like pension funds uh, and those who invest their funds. Uh, but, But they are not the entrepreneurial world about which business is created.
0: If you had a message for Ranil Jayawardene, the Environment Secretary, um, there's obviously, as we've obviously discussed, a lot of change going on. If you could have a send him a message about how you think he should he should go forward with, you know, some of these changes or, or not, perhaps. Um, what what would it be that you would say to him?
4: In my view, there is a very clear analysis about the way this country is governed. And it is very dramatically over-centralized. And if I learned anything from walking the streets of Liverpool in 1981, it was how remote London is from the decisions that need to be taken locally. Basically, uh, slightly over-generalizing, but uh, uh, great cities or great counties are economies in their own right And this was all clearly revealed by the Redcliffe-Maud report of the 1960s, which uh, argued that we should have um, uh, 60 unitary authorities to govern England. Um, We've, at the moment, got 300. So if you really want to infuse and build on the strengths of a local economy, you have to do an analysis of what those strengths and opportunities are. And the people most equipped to do that, not surprisingly, are the people who live there. And most of these opportunities require a multidisciplinary approach. You know, if you want uh, to attract, for example, a, a technological based company, you need to be sure that the local skills, Agency is delivering the sort of people they want to recruit. If you want the university to play a full role in helping to exploit the knowledge that they have, you need good quality land alongside on which you can start start businesses, Uh, and and one thing leads to another. So uh, trying to evolve a strategy of local empowerment and local excitement and local strengths you need a, a framework of administration and basically it's called a unitary authority and you need someone in charge and it's called an elected mayor and this is not rocket science you look at every other capitalist economy in the world and that's the way they do it we do exactly the opposite we have functional departments in, West, in whitehall all doing their own thing, skills, education, housing, transport, whatever it may be, and there is no coordinating mechanism. So if you are in charge of a major conurbation and you've got some ideas to really galvanise it, you have to make about eight or nine phone calls to see whether you've got any support. So we need a fundamental realignment of power, and in my view... George Osborne began that process, but I'm afraid that uh, his initiatives did not survive uh, until the present day, and I don't see any significant indication at the moment that they're going to be brought back. But that's what's missing.
0: Okay, thank you, Lord Heseltine. That was really interesting. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. Um, I could, you know, could chat about this stuff for days, but we have to move on to our next section, which is knowing me, knowing EU with Simon and Alice.
5: Thanks, Rachel. Uh, and here we are again, this time we'll be talking about the right to repair and how consumer rights and environmental protection often go hand in hand. Simon, <laughs> can you tell us uh, about what's the latest news on the right to repair initiative in the EU?
2: I will do, I will do, Alice. Thanks Thanks for the introduction. Um, right to repair is a concept that's becoming really popular at the moment in the EU. It's got really high level political buy-in, from the president of the European Commission herself, Ursula von der Leyen. She mentioned it in her annual State of the Union speech a few weeks ago as a big priority for the Commission. Basically, the right to repair would give EU consumers a series of rights regarding um, the availability of spare parts for electronic devices, making it easier for people to repair their own devices or to seek uh, professional assistance to get that repaired if they don't want to do it themselves
5: so the idea is that uh, it will lengthen the uh, lifespan of products and in the same in one fell swoop also save money for people essentially
2: correct yeah it's all about tackling premature obsolescence which i think is the preferred term these days rather than planned obsolescence but that's the notion now quite commonly understood that electronics companies like to make their products last for a fraction of the time they could last because it's just more profitable for them to do that. Yeah. And it's, a, it's actually a history that goes back all the way to the very start of um, uh, the electronics industry, I guess, when you had a kind of cartel in the, in the 1900s that basically um, sat down and agreed that light bulbs are lasting too long and they should last less time.
5: So basically, the European Commission was set to approve its proposal for the initiative on the 30th of November 2022. But that's been delayed, has it?
2: It has been. This is hot off the press. So this week we learned from a Green MEP, Anna Cavatini, who's the chair of the European Parliament um, uh, Internal Market Committee, that the Commission has told her that it's having to delay the publication of its right to repair proposal. And that's because what happens with EU legislation since 2015 is it before it gets published, it gets sent to a kind of shadowy um oversight board called the Regulatory Scrutiny Board, the RSB. And the RSB um sits, has a look at the impact assessment the Commission's produced for a proposal and judges whether or not it thinks the proposal is um, fit for purpose. And quite regularly with environmental files, the RSB comes back and it says, you need to rework various elements of this proposal because we don't think it's providing whatever their reasons are, you know, um regulatory clarity or it could be a whole number of reasons that they that they cite. Unfortunately, um, because this is the EU, we don't get to see those reports until after the proposal's been published. So I don't have the details on what the RSB didn't like about the rights to repair proposal. Um Anna and her team uh, in the email exchanges with me seemed pretty upset by the delay. It now seems likely that the commission is going to have to rework parts of the proposal and probably mm. it won't be ready until sometime like March, is the, the date that I'm now hearing, which is, I think, uh, quite gutting for a lot of people who've worked really, really hard on this proposal. And it, the RSB is one of these parts of this kind of EU governance process that a lot of people... I'm very unhappy about because it it is quite untransparent and it's not at all clear for a lot of people why uh, uh a board with um uh kind of slightly random members gets to have the final say on whether something can be published or not if it was introduced as part of the EU's kind of better regulation um yeah so it's initiative, uh,
5: it's more of a Mm, maybe more of a judicial review type of idea where it looks at whether the initiatives are hitting all the bases that they need to hence the need for you know clarity i think if you're taking if you're
2: taking a generous view you could say that the rsb was part of a push to make the commission's proposals more legally sound Yeah, yeah that would be one approach so then actually proposals spend less time being caught up in Legal action, for yeah, instance, which and happens a lot. save
5: time yeah. overall.
2: Yeah, could be. Anyway, um, people are people. It's fair to say people are unhappy about the delay. Um, but it's the,
5: still going to come through.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it will come through. And, and the, the other things we would we'll probably never find out what the what the changes they had to make were. I mean, we may do.
5: So that's not the only thing that the EU is bringing through or bringing forward about the uh, right to repair um, and as part of the circular economy package. So one or two of the initiatives that are related uh, would probably be the revision of the eco-design regulation earlier this year.
2: Yeah, exactly. So in March, the commission put forward a proposal to turn the the current eco-design directive into a regulation. Basically, among the other things that this proposal would do, it would massively increase the amount of sustainability criteria that certain product classes would be judged by when they're when they're given a kind of eco design rating. So Eco Design Directive mainly looked at energy consumption, energy use for like your TV or for your um radios or your 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 fan ventilators on top of your cookers or a, a whole range of products basically i mean that's really really helped to drive down eu energy use actually one of the most effective measures um the eco design regulation would also then add repairability durability uh as criteria and the way that basically the commission would go about this it's already got, actually got started is it it would then issue um draft regulations underneath the eco design regulation on particular product classes so in September it published a draft regulation that was concerning mobile phones and tablets and that would include um, judging mobile phones and tablets based on their repairability durability um, accessibility of spare parts and various aspects like that which actually would be a really helpful um, step for a lot of consumers who, who who don't want to have to buy a phone every two years.
5: Yeah, again, it slots into a framework which um, makes makes it easier to repair the pieces that need to be changed or repaired or changed without having to throw out the entire the entire item. Yeah, exactly. So a sort of more modular view of things.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the green groups are relatively pleased about it as well i think as always people have criticisms and i think one of the things that um, right to repair advocacy groups are worried about is how much repairing will cost whether it would really be attractive for consumers to make use of these new rights that they have
5: yeah um, and for manufacturers exactly
2: as well. yeah so, so there's a bunch of stuff which i think people still believe could be improved but it's definitely a step forward the other the other one just quickly to mention of course is um the eu is really gunning for the big tech uh, mm-hmm. uh through uh common charges um for most portable electronic devices so that, that and this is actually now on the verge of becoming law it's been approved by parliament and by member states which is basically all electronic devices will have to have a usb-c charger from 2024 and laptops by 2026 but your phones your portable radios your gps your all all that kind of stuff will have to have a USB C charger um and that's that's a big step forward from a repairability perspective because then you in a way simplifies that whole process but also just it means you you won't have to have a thousand yeah. cables for everything
5: just for travelers it's yeah. great yeah, you pretty, can take one charger pretty, pretty if actually. you forget a charger <laughs> you don't have to worry um so obviously yeah it's just making life simpler for at least for consumers um and hopefully it's also a move to tamp down on waste, especially yeah. electrical and electronic waste, which is costly generally and yeah. Yeah, generally a pain. Yeah,
2: yeah exactly. Um, I mean, it seems weird to end on a slightly positive note for once, but I...
5: <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes there is
0: progress. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Back to you, Rachel.
0: And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Jamie Carpenter, Tess Colley, Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to endsreport.com, where we also have a nifty new feature where you can link directly to some of the articles on the issues that we've been talking about today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time.